Our scripture reading is from Acts 19, 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of it all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God for the people of God. Go on, children. Go with Mr. Josh and Wim. Thank you, Marie. Thank you, Branson and Brooke, for filling in for Frankie. Frankie, I know, enjoys being able to just sit in a worship service and be able to worship, so it's a privilege to be able to provide that for her. Um, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. As we continue our series, what is the mission of the church? So for the past few weeks, we've picked up following Paul on his missionary journeys throughout the known world, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth as he was saved and commanded to do. This is his purpose, is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, as Jesus had commanded his disciples to do. We're seeing that being fulfilled We've learned that to be effective disciple-makers ourselves, because we need to learn how to do that on a very practical level, um, to be effective disciple-makers ourselves, we must practice denial, pursue joy in Jesus, 
find encouragement in his eternal promises and remain teachable following the way of humility instead of the way of pride. Now, that sounds like a lot, um, but we are given help along the way, and that is really what all, this whole sermon is about. What is our help in making disciples? How has God aided us in this call and this commission? Because he has not left us alone to do it or by ourselves to figure it out, but we are given supernatural power by a helper to be and make disciples for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. And so um, this morning, I wanted to remind us of what our source of power is, and I really want to help us understand, as it's been helpful for me this week, who Holy Spirit is and what exactly He does and how He functions in our lives and His role in the ministry of the church. So let me pray. Father, we undertake a um, large task this morning in understanding even the, the mysteries of the ways in which you work. I thank you, Father, that you reveal to us through your scriptures uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, um, the third person of the Trinity who is often forgotten. Lord, may we remember him. May we um, experience his power and his grace in our hearts and our lives this week. For, for anyone in this room who's never experienced the power of the Spirit, Lord, I pray that they might, through repentance and faith, come to know you and be given this helper to dwell within their hearts. Oftentimes, my girls ask me, where is God? And we can actually say he dwells within us. He is in your heart. That is not just some cute um, thing that we say. Uh, Lord, it is truth. I pray that your spirit rest heavy on us this morning that we might understand more of your grace and your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I love about my daughter Essie, she's our five-year-old, soon to be six, is that she loves to ask questions. She's very inquisitive. She's very curious. She's very much an oldest child. And when I was a child, I, um, at some point, I think, felt stupid about asking questions because I felt like I didn't know enough. And I think at some point, I can't remember the exact moment, but I, I felt like questions were kind of, I was embarrassed to ask questions because it meant I didn't know something. So I've really gone overboard with Essie, like to encourage her, you always ask questions, always ask questions. Sometimes that gets a little much, you know, um, when, when the questions are nonstop. But for the most part, I love when she asks questions. And the main time for Essie to ask me questions is on our drive from the house to school every Morning, and Essie will ask questions about a myriad of subjects. She will ask about traffic lights. She will ask about how a car works. She will ask about road signs. She will ask about the, the moon that she can see in the sky. She'll, she'll ask about the sun, and she'll ask about the rotation of the earth, and she'll ask about um, babies and how they're made, and all of these wonderful, inquisitive things that I try to give the best answer I possibly can. And just this past week, she asked me, Daddy, what is an earthquake? Well, trying to explain it to her. Um, as best I can. You, I wish you all could be in the car in these moments and hear the ridiculous answers I give to things I don't know the answers to, but I still try to act like I do, to be a responsible father and educate my child. Um, and it got me to thinking about the first time. She said, have you ever seen an earthquake? I was like, I don't think so. Um, and it got me to think about the first time I ever saw an earthquake. And you know, the first time I ever saw an earthquake was on October 17th, 1989, at 5.04 p.m. Does anybody remember this earthquake? You have to be as old as like Micah and Rob and I to remember this. But at 5.04 p.m., an earthquake hit during the World Series. It was the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. This is the first earthquake I ever saw on national TV. 
and it interrupted the World Series for 10 days. They stopped playing for 10 days, and it was covered by the Goodyear blimp, which actually provided like rescue services for the whole city, and people saw what was going on before the game even started, and so they avoided going down there, and bridges were collapsing, and it was, this, it was a huge earthquake. And that earthquake started in the San Andreas Fault in the Andreas Mountains, and it spread, it was felt for nearly 40 miles outside of its epicenter with um, aftershocks. Why do I mention this? Well, I was thinking about that this week as I was studying this passage because the events that take place here in Acts chapter 19, they've raised a lot of questions throughout church history. You see, people wonder if this experience that these 12, these 12 disciples of John the Baptist have of receiving the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and prophesying is normative for all believers. So is this the normal experience that every believer has of experiencing the Holy Spirit in this way? And I believe, after some careful study, in my humble opinion, this is not a normative experience. It is a very abnormal experience, but one for a very specific purpose. I believe that there's a unique event that functions as an aftershock See where I'm going here? As an aftershock to the cataclysmic event known as Pentecost that happened in Acts chapter 2. You know, the tongues of fire, Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. And that experience happened to delineate the old covenant era that's taking place in the Old Testament from the new covenant era and the pouring out of the Spirit upon all believers. Now, I believe that those things are connected But this is delineating like the first part from the second part. In his book, um, simply titled The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson, a book I read in seminary and that I kind of have to revisit every five years because it's magnificent. Um, Highly recommend it. It's it's a dense read, but it's well worth your time. It's one book you read like five pages and you're like, I've got to read five more and five more. And you end up reading 100 pages. But Pentecost, he says, is an earthquake. A monumental and powerful event not to be repeated, but sending shockwaves throughout redemptive history felt in different measures of power at different times and places in church history. One of the most important questions I was asked during my ordination exams way back in 2009 was, what is the difference between how the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament and how the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament? And you would think as one pursuing ordination, I would know the answer to that question, But that, and there was one other question that really stumbled me. And I was grilled on that question for about an hour and a half till late in the morning. Um, I didn't give a very satisfactory answer back then. And I remember feeling a little bit embarrassed about that. And so it's always stuck with me. And I've been kind of receiving the answer to that question over the last 10 years or so. And I really felt like this week I received a lot of clarity on that. The way I understand it now is that in the Old Testament, the Spirit has been active. The Spirit is active amongst God's people in the Old Testament. But His activity was limited, sporadic, selective, and in some respects, external. So the prophets longed for better days. Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, that all the, he wishes that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit in God's people. That's interesting. Moses recognized there was Holy Spirit. He was at work, but he longed for the Holy Spirit to be in God's people. By contrast, in the New Testament, the Spirit would be poured out in a universal manner, dwelling in all of God's people, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9, which says, filling the the people of God with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. That's, That's what's happening with the spread of the gospel in these last days. 
And by last days, I mean from Jesus' ascension into heaven until now, until Jesus comes back. That His Spirit is filling all of God's people with the knowledge of the Lord so that we know things about the Lord that we would not know without His Holy Spirit revealing those things to us. So Pentecost was the inauguration of a new era brought about by Christ's life and death and resurrection in which the Spirit proceeded from Jesus. So the Spirit is proceeding from the Father in the Old Testament. He is proceeding from Jesus primarily in the New Testament. And He does not proceed unless Jesus is raised from the dead. So, He leaves Holy Spirit to dwell not just with the people of God as He did in the Old Testament, but now in them. Now think about what I'm saying. It kind of gets lost on us because we just say that a lot, like the Holy Spirit lives in my heart and that kind of stuff. You have, by faith and repentance, believer, Christian, the Holy Spirit inside of you in a special way, in a way that was given because of Jesus. Just as at Mount Sinai, Moses ascended to the mountain and then came down with the law of God on tablets of stone, so Jesus ascended into heaven and has left us with His Holy Spirit so that God's law is written now on our hearts. I don't know if you've ever made that connection before. It's an important connection to make. And we need this Holy Spirit known as the paraclete, the helper, called by Jesus to our aid, a comforter, an advocate who testifies to Jesus to witness to the gospel. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the church even today. Holy Spirit is a He. So we can just say Holy Spirit. We don't have to say the Holy Spirit. It is a He. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity. He's necessary to the work of the church and the life of the Christian as as much as the Father and the Son is. So what is He doing here in Acts chapter 19? Four things. He's empowering. He's revealing. He's healing. And He's convicting. He's empowering, revealing, healing, and convicting. First, He empowers. Look with me at verses 1 through 7. What is going on here? So Paul has finally come back to Ephesus. He made a quick stop in Ephesus to drop off Priscilla and Aquila. They've been making everything, uh, getting things ready for him to uh, return. They found that Apollos guy who was this fantastic preacher. They told him about Jesus and the the rest of the Gospels. We have the full Gospel. They send him off to Corinth to help believers in, in planting churches and spreading the Gospel, and he's very effective in that. Um, And then Paul arrives in Ephesus, almost taking kind of Apollos' place as the primary preacher. And when he arrives, he meets these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. When Paul arrives in Ephesus, um, it marks, this is the gospel going into Asia, that's where Ephesus was. It marks a major signpost for the advancement of the gospel. It's really important to remember. At these different stages of the gospel going from Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as Jesus said, there are special things that happen, namely what the Holy Spirit does at these different stages. It's really important to highlight that because it explains what Holy Spirit does and what He's doing here to give these men the ability to speak in tongues and to prophesy. You have to remember, prophecy is not just predicting the future. Okay, prophecy, when the Old Testament prophets spoke, when they prophesied, they would introduce anything they said with, this is what the Lord says. So they were giving people the Word of God. That Word was eventually recorded and written down. But before it was recorded and written down, the prophets were the primary voice and the mouthpiece of God's revelation to His people. 
So while prophecy can be predicting future things that will happen, that's not primarily in all that it is. It is speaking the Word of God. So Holy Spirit, with these 12 disciples, empowers them to speak the Word of God in this new territory where the gospel is going forth, marking the beginning of the end, the beginning of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. It's broken through to a new place. We saw this in Acts chapter 8 when the Holy Spirit uh, was given to the disciples there when it reached Samaria and people began prophesying and speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 10, the same thing happens when the gospel goes to Caesarea and the Gentiles first hear the gospel in mass. They spoke in tongues. They praised God emphatically, it says. And then here in Acts chapter 19, it's making its way into Asia and to the ends of the earth. And so the Spirit being poured out in these specific geographical places, in these specific moments in redemptive historical history, acts as signposts for the advancement of the gospel, just as Jesus promised. Just as we read in Ezekiel 36 this morning with our confession. What did Wim read? I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's what's taking place at the beginning of Acts chapter 19 and verses 1 through 7. And what's going to take place from here on out is these 12 disciples of John the Baptist who had received half the gospel, they had received a, a baptism of repentance, now they receive a baptism of of faith and of grace, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them to take the gospel and to do the work of ministry. It says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we read about this oftentimes in Acts. Paul was filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul wasn't just filled with the Spirit one time. So what's not happening here, I believe, this is not some sort of second baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that is necessary for you to through faith and repentance, come to salvation and then receive a special baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are people who believe that. And we can sit at the table and we can have a discussion. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's fine. I don't think that's what's taking place here. Because a big, big evidence for that is because it talks about Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit on multiple occasions. And so what the Holy Spirit does when it says it's filled with the whole, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's simply an empowerment to do the work that we could not do on our own. And so you have to ask yourself, have you experienced being filled with the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit for certain works and certain times when you've needed Holy Spirit? Do you ever pray for that? Do you ever put yourself in a situation where God would fill you with His Spirit to accomplish His purposes? Now, the reason we probably don't experience this very much is because we oftentimes love comfort more than we do risking our reputations for the sake of the gospel. But as we take those risks for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors, making disciples, if you will, we can experience this same filling of the Holy Spirit. Not in a way that He was absent from us, but in a way that there is an, an, an extra measure of power that is given to us for tasks that are beyond our ability to do on our own. So, 
Um, he empowers, and then we see in verses 8 through 10 that he reveals. Now, this is pretty amazing what happens in verses 8 through 10. Paul has shown up. He goes um, into this place called the Hall of Tyrannius, and he rents this place out for two years. He spent the first three months reasoning and debating the gospel, the truth of the gospels and other religions and worldviews with these people. Um, which Paul always did, which is important for us to remember every week. He talks about him doing what he does in a relational context. It's not just a one-off. He's entering into dialogue with these people. The work that Paul is doing, which is really important to remember too, is outside of the temple or the synagogue. So the work of ministry for the church is oftentimes outside of our walls. What we are doing here this morning is extremely important. What we do with our children's ministry, what we do when we gather together as the body of Christ, is very important, but it is not all we are called to do. In fact, the most important work for us to do is probably outside of our walls, in relationship with our neighbors, in our workplaces, in our family groups. And that's what Paul is putting on display for us. He's going out into his place where he makes tents as a tent maker. He's going into this hall. He actually rents this hall for two years during the time of 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., some of the manuscripts tell us, which was actually the hottest part of the day when almost everyone in that particular city went home to take naps. It was the only time that he could get that, that this Tyrannius guy would allow him to rent this hall is when no one was going to be there. But Paul took advantage of it. He trusted in the Holy Spirit's work to do ministry through him. And these strange people called the Asiarchs show up. Asiarchs were wealthy men who were tasked with the responsibility of essentially um, lobbying and politicking for the emperor. They were to promote the highest end of all mankind in that city was to worship the emperor as their god. And that's what they did. They used all of their resources to get people to understand that that was the most important thing that they could be doing. And yet, for some reason, men who had never heard of God, never heard of uh, the God of Christianity, never heard of Jesus, show up in mass in this hall between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. during nap time forsaking their daily naps, something which I probably would not be able to do myself, to hear Paul explain to them the truths of the gospel. That is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That makes no sense. But God is up to something, and it tells us in verse 10 something really remarkable. Imagine, imagine this being true in Nashville. It says, This continued for two years so that all... All the residents of Ephesus heard the gospel, both Jews and Greeks. That's a pretty effective ministry. There's roughly 16,000 people that live in this parish where we are. Could you imagine if all 16,000 people heard the gospel? If God worked in Flat Rock in such a way? That's called revival. And that is a work of the Spirit in a unique way, in a place and a point in time in redemptive historical history in which He is working to explode the gospel to change the world. That's what we need to be praying for. We have maybe 150 people that regularly attend Flat Rock right now, growing church. Maybe had close to 80 or 90 like a year ago. So God is growing His church here. But there's a lot more growth to be done. There's a lot more work to be done to make the gospel known to all the people. It says all the people in Asia. 
through these 13 dudes, Holy Spirit gives every person in Asia, Asia ears to hear and eyes to see the truth. Although not all are saved, they're still, they still hear it. Some are effectually called by the work of the Spirit, and they're saved, in which the Holy Spirit continues His work healing people in verses 11 through 12. So Holy Spirit is doing so. I mean, he's, he's, he's at work here in Ephesus. And He is revealing, and He is empowering, and He is healing. So the point is pretty straightforward in this next part, but pretty extraordinary, that He is doing such a work through Paul that even, it says, even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul as he's walking through the streets and the crowds of people, that as it touches their skin, those, those things are taken home, and for some reason they heal people of diseases, cancer or leprosy or blindness, whatever it might be, those things, those people are being healed. It harkens back to the lady with the discharge of blood who just merely touched Jesus' cloak and was healed. It harkens back to Jesus speaking words of healing to people who were far off without even having to be in their presence and they were healed. Think of Jairus' daughter who's raised from the dead. Again, what powers that? It's the work of Holy Spirit. He proceeds from the Son through the apostles, through the church to do extraordinary healings, authenticating the apostles, bearing witness to the power of the gospel to heal the sickest and most diseased parts of us, our hearts. And if he can do that, how much more can he revive and rehabilitate those of us who are struggling spiritually? Do you look to Holy Spirit for that kind of help? He is there for you. God cares for your well-being that much. And while we're not supposed to make a direct application of taking handkerchiefs and aprons and somehow doing some voodoo magic over them to put in people's homes so they can be healed, the point is that we, there's a power available to us that can do things like this. And by faith, we can trust that He will restore. And so that takes us to our last point. Finally, he convicts. Now, this is a pretty humorous story here as these traveling Jewish exorcists see what's taking place in these healings. Everyone in the city is talking about the gospel, like everyone's hearing it. So the world's being turned right side up or upside down, depending on how you look at it. There's something massive going on in this city. And these people see it and they think, clearly these guys have some special sort of power. Maybe we could use this special sort of power. And they're using it by talking about this guy, Jesus, who we don't believe is the Messiah, but he might have been a prophet and a powerful teacher and healer. So we're going to invoke his name and we're going to go try and earn money. They would charge people money and they would try to exercise demons from people. It's part of the economy. And it tells us as they try to invoke the name of Jesus, this spirit talking through this man who is possessed begins talking trash to these Jewish exorcists. You can imagine the scene, hearing this demonic voice, just terrifying, but almost kind of humorous, saying, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who the heck are you? Jesus, I know. So even the demons recognize who Jesus is. They understand who his people are, but who the heck are you guys? And what are you trying to do? And then like a ninja out of the darkness, he jumps these dudes and beats them in such submission that their clothes are ripped off, 
They run out of this house butt naked and out into the streets, and God is in charge the entire time, using something so strange and ridiculous to bring about something that is even greater than this event. As it tells us that these people, what is their reaction and their response to this divine disruption as we've talked about? They go into their houses. Now, this is unbelievable. They go into their houses, and they grab all their books on magic. You see, there was this temple there. It was the the largest temple in the city. The whole city was built around the temple of Artemis or Diana. There was all kinds of... It served as a bank. It served as a place where there was occult worship. There's all kinds of, like, disturbing practices going on here. They practiced this witchcraft and magic, and they all had books to tell them the spells. And they see these people run out of the house naked. And they see this demon act like a ninja and disrupt these people's lives. And they go in their house, they grab all the books they can, and they begin to burn them and get rid of them. Now, it tells us um, that it's worth, oh, um, 50,000 pieces of silver. So if we equate that to, if we, we, you know, we factor in inflation... It's believed that that's $6 million worth of books. Their response to Holy Spirit is, we're going to burn everything that does not promote who this is. Imagine this entire city invading their own homes for these books of idolatry, bringing them together for a massive bonfire if you will, forsaking their idols in a moment. They've never heard of the God of Christianity. The Holy Spirit is working so powerfully that they forsake everything they've ever known their entire lives, and they say, I want to submit and surrender to whoever their God is. I want to know this Jesus. I want to have this Holy Spirit living inside of me. You notice it doesn't tell us that the man was healed of the demon. We, I hope he was. He certainly wasn't by these dudes. But through that divine disruption, through God's power over evil, no matter, none of us have ever experienced anything like this as far as terror, probably. No matter what you're experiencing in your life, there is a God who has power over it. There's no evil that is outside of his control. There's no evil that you can do that God throws his hands up and he's like, I don't have an answer for that. Sorry. It's beyond my scope. He can heal all things. Um, I'll close with this. Holy Spirit didn't just show up at Pentecost. Okay? Part of the point is, what I'm trying to make is He's always been there. Even at creation, let us make man in our image, the triune God. God breathed. Life talks about the Holy Spirit being the breath of God. God breathes life into existence. From His nostrils came life for Adam and Eve. By the Spirit, He delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, it tells us in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is an interesting kind of study that I did this week on where is Holy Spirit mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, Their rebellion, in spite of their deliverance, it tells us in Isaiah 63, grieved the Holy Spirit. Listen to the words of Isaiah 63. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. But he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people, of the deliverance that he gave them. So it is in God's remembering of his own faithfulness that he is faithful to you. 
He put Holy Spirit in their midst to deliver them from slavery to freedom, it says, and to give them rest. Why does God care so much about your rest? You know, when the apostles are preaching the gospel, they talk about receive the the gospel so that times of refreshment might come to your soul. Because we are so exhausted by our idol worship. We're so undone. We're so confused. We're so full of shame. And He wants us to experience the rest that that can only be found in Him through the power of His Spirit. So ask yourself this morning, what are you using your freedom for? Selfish gain, licentious living? I'm a little worried lately through a lot of conversations with people, and this is something that I've thought and prayed a lot about. I think there's a culture of licentiousness at Flat Rock. For whatever reason, and we, we really need to examine this as elders, we've created a culture where people are presuming upon grace. Where some people who have experienced the power of the Spirit are saying, well, now I have freedom to do whatever I want, which you do. But is that the best way for us to live? And so I think there needs to be a culture of repentance, starting with your pastor and your, your elders, that trickles down to all the people of the church in which we repent of our licentiousness. Licentiousness is saying, I don't care about the law of God. I'm going to live and do whatever I want. And I don't care about what God says. I'm going to indulge in sinful practices because I'm forgiven. We need to be aware of this. I mean, this is what Paul talked to the Corinthian church about, like profaning the Lord's Supper, getting drunk on wine. Are we, what kind of culture are we creating here? with our relationship to alcohol, with our relationship to pleasure? Are we speaking truth into each other's lives? Are we creating a culture where people are walking in holiness by the power of the Spirit or in a a culture of indulgence? That's not in my sermon. Um, Something interesting that John mentions in John chapter 7 He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'll explain what that is. It says, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, of his heart will flow, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified, resurrected, and ascended. So John tells us something really interesting here. Jesus stood up during the Feast of Tabernacles where God's people were to remember and celebrate what God did to provide for His people in the wilderness through manna from heaven and the water from the rock. Without Jesus, our hearts are as hard as the rock in the desert, but not too hard for God to overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit. John would one day stand before the dying Jesus on the cross and see water and blood from his side, the blood representing the forgiveness that would be poured out from him, the water representing the spirit that would be poured out to give new life and cleansing. The spirit who is given to us by faith flows out of us as living water now, as the people of God. He was withheld in full until the Son was glorified in his resurrection. He is now freely given to all to empower and reveal and heal and convict. And he can do that even for us today. But through faith and repentance. So, 
Let us consider the efficacious and life-giving work of the Spirit on our behalf as we go to the table this morning, considering how we might walk by the Spirit as Paul challenges us to do in Galatians 5. And I'll end with these words from Paul in Galatians. Well, sorry, this take from a commentary on Paul's words in Galatians 5 by a man named Philip Reich, and he writes this. He says, it's easy to fall out of step with the Spirit. Paul talks about walking by the Spirit. When Paul speaks of keeping in step, he's really talking about a slow process of following orders. The Greek term here is stoikomen. It's a military term. It means to stay in formation. It's to maintain good military discipline. Soldiers must stay in line as they march. Soldiers march and run in formation. Like soldiers, we are called to stay in formation. When we do, like those soldiers, all we have to worry about is keeping in step. Soldiers don't have to worry about where they're going or how they're to get there if they stay in step. Their commanding officer will give them orders when necessary. The only thing soldiers need to know is how to step in time. It is the same way in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is God's drill sergeant. It is His job to keep us in line. As He barks out the cadence, all we have to do is keep our place in the formation and stay in rank. We do not run alone. Some of you all are lone rangers in this room. This is why we need the church. This is why we need community. Just as those soldiers don't run alone either, our brothers and sisters are right beside us. Ideally, we march stride by stride. A good unit never lets one of its men fall behind. We must not either. We must help each other all the way to our goal. Let's pray.